I'm Chad Main, the founder of Legal Services Company Percipient, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal technology, legal innovation, and the impact tech is having on the legal industry. On today's show, I talk to Angela Fossil. She's Global Director of Pricing and Legal Project Management in Morrison Forrester. We talk about the litigation finance program she helped set up at her firm, permitting them to take on good cases they might not otherwise have been able to, secure good results for clients they may not have otherwise been able to help, and all the while helping the firm's bottom line while doing it. On this episode of Technical Legal, I talked to Angela Fossil. Before moving over to legal, she spent most of her career in finance, but in 2015, she took her business skills over to the legal world, first to Baker McKenzie, and now she's at Morrison Forrester, where she's Global Director of Pricing and Legal Project Management. Among other responsibilities, Angela was hired by MoFo to build out their pricing and practice management teams, but her business side also helped her spot another opportunity at the firm to develop, a litigation funding program. As we will hear, her firm now has a structured litigation funding team with a due diligence protocol and a legal funding committee, which helps them vet good cases that they can then take to legal funders for financing. But before we get to that, we first hear from Angela how and why she made the jump from finance to legal. I'm good with numbers. I don't think I'm, you know, a super strong analytical person, but what I do think I am good at is kind of the common sense of numbers and how you can take them and use them in your business life and how that can help you make better decisions. So that's what I liked about finance was I tried to apply it in how do you use it to make better decisions in what you're doing in your work versus just the pure financials. So a good chunk of your career before legal was in finance, in telecommunications specifically, and a lot of it in Europe. How do you end up in telecommunications in the first place? Well, my dad was in it actually. Ah. So um, he worked for the University of Illinois. He was the director of telecommunications. He was one of the first to put in a network. So worked on the Mosaic project, which ended up being the World Wide Web and all of that. So I kind of grew up with his engineering background and, and what he did in telecommunications. So when I graduated, I, I got lucky and was part of a pilot with Ameritech where they brought in directly out of school, so non-senior people within telecommunications to kind of break the monopoly mindset. And so I, I just got lucky. And What was your degree? I got a degree in economics. And so you just... You work your way up. Yep. Ultimately, you had some pretty high positions yeah. within finance telecommunications. How do you end up in Europe? I ended up in Europe when SBC came in and bought Ameritech. They wanted me to go to Texas. I didn't want to go. And the chief marketing officer at, at Ameritech's husband was Swiss. And they were going to go over to Switzerland because she got a role as the chief marketing officer for the cable company of Switzerland. And she said, do you want to go? Because they need someone to help convert them from Swiss Gap to U.S. Gap and and help me get up my organization set up. So it was supposed to be a six-month consulting gig. They needed someone that was a U.S. Gap specialist. And after I got there, they were like, you're pretty good. So they offered me a three-year contract, and and I ended up staying a lot longer. (laughs) You came back to the United States, what, 2015? Late 2015, I came back. I was in in Switzerland for 13 years. And then... Ultimately, you make the jump to legal. Yes. So with Baker McKenzie specifically to start. Yes, yes. How'd that happen? Was it a choice or opportunity? It was an opportunity. So I, um, we were going to just do a two-year sabbatical here. And, and about nine months into it, we decided to stay. And I got a call from my very good friend, who's a recruiter who had placed the global CFO at Baker. And she said, they, they need someone to help them get out of the mess with SAP. 
and you have all the right background because I implemented SAP before in Europe and it was Baker McKinsey. So I was like, oh my God, of course I'm going to go. So it was kind of the circumstance and it just fit with the timing and they really did need someone that had a, a different experience because nobody had done SAP in legal. So it was brand new. So they needed a process oriented type of CFO that could come in and, and get them out of the situation they were in. So it was a perfect fit. Was there any part of you that was reticent to jump into legal coming from a business background? I was probably a bit naive, but I do have to say going through the interview process, I think I interviewed with about eight different people, six of which were different partners. And they kept asking me, you know, questions about the culture and how I'd fit in. So at the very, very end, I remember saying to my managing partner who ended up hiring me, I said, do you not think I'm qualified for the job? And he goes, oh, no, no, you're totally qualified for the job. I'm like, why are we doing this? He goes, I'm afraid we're going to scare you away. And I was like, <laughs> oh, no, I worked in PE. I'll be okay. And so I, I guess there was a part of me that thought, maybe I should have thought about that. But I never really had an issue with the partners. I think the only difference is, and I think that's why I went into pricing, is sometimes I think they think finance people are just kind of accounting or back office. And I think it is starting to change and pricing is part of that, but finance can help you make good decisions too. And, and I think it's just as important as, you know, some of the other roles and it's not, it shouldn't be viewed as just billing. What's a good example of that? And how do you convince partners that by leveraging the skills of finance, you can make better decisions in the legal practice? We do a lot of analysis for partners on direct margin so they understand if their work is profitable or not or what the levers are. And perfect examples of we've done analysis for them on different kinds of areas of practice like M&A. So we could say, you know, we've looked at all the different transactions. We could see what broken deals are. We can see that you can go up to this level of a discount on a broken deal because you don't actually lose that much on it and still be profitable because the other work is profitable in, in this way. And so it allowed us to set a pricing strategy for M&A work that they didn't know. They were kind of shooting in the dark because nobody had done any analysis. They were guessing. Right. So, you know, those are examples of things that I, I think we can provide. And then, of course, anytime that we work on any contingency or any kind of matter where we're trying to have a success those are always great where we can model them and show them the outcomes and what the risk, you know, that we're taking. And so those are things I think are very beneficial. What was the biggest, I don't know if surprise is the right word or change for you and your, your work day, your work life, being in legal versus being in telecommunications in the business world? I think the hardest thing about legal is that you have, in our case, because of the size of our firm, I have 300 bosses. <laughs> and so you cannot easily prioritize sometimes work, even though something... And that's the nature of a law firm, right? That's they're the partners, nature of a law firm. They're, partners, they're all owners. They're all bosses. And it's very hard sometimes to, to convey that in a way that is acceptable. You have to be very skilled at it to say, I understand this seems really important right now, but we're working on this other thing and that needs to take priority over this. And sometimes you can get that through someone's head that that's, you know, the priority and other times you just can't. And so you feel like you're, if you're really someone that's trying to impact the business, sometimes I feel like oh, we're not working on the right priorities. Yeah. 
but that's the only thing, you know, and I understand it. They're all owners, but right. that can be a hard thing to juggle and, and manage. Right. And then there's also a level of skepticism. I mean, this is well known. I mean, they, on, they've done psychological studies and on the skepticism scale, lawyers are like way beyond the red. So how do you deal with that? If they're being skeptical about what you're trying, you know, you just said helps lawyers make good decisions by using financial information. But again, you got to convince them to even take that first step and consider that. So how do you get around that skepticism? What have you learned? I, I mean, you have to build trust. You absolutely have to build trust with them. And I think being able to back up and know your numbers and know the answers to their questions and have confidence when you're talking to them goes a long way. I think a lot of people hem and haw and, and, and are a little bit uncomfortable when they are approaching a partner and, and they sense that. And so- right you don't win them over right away if you're hesitant. Right. So, I mean, I haven't experienced situations where they haven't tried to work with me or listen to me, but I have seen others that have, have struggled with that. So when we come back, Angela tells us how she and others at her law firm helped build out their litigation finance program. I'm Chad Main, and you're listening to Technically Legal. This podcast is brought to you by Percipient a legal services company powered by technology. Percipient helps legal teams tackle legal operations, electronic document review, and process automation. Percipient services include managed document review, subpoena compliance, cyber incident response, and also helps legal teams provide clients with process-driven legal support. To learn more, visit percipient.co. Percipient. Legal services powered by technology. All right, we'll get back to my conversation with Angela Fosel in just a second. But before we get back to our talk, like I often do, I just want to remind you at tealpodcast.com, there's a dedicated episode page for every episode we do, including today's episode with Angela. And there you'll find more information about our guests, how you can get a hold of them, and links to some of the stuff we talk about. All right, let's get back to my conversation with Angela Fosel. She's going to tell us how she and others at her law firm developed their litigation funding program. So litigation financing or funding if in our view is a product or a service that we offer to clients to allow them to take on the, you know, the Goliaths and be able to, to try a you know, or take a case that they wouldn't have been able to take before because they didn't have funding. So it's a, it, to us, it's a service that allows our, our clients to actually engage in a transaction that they may not have been able to do before, you know, prior to having it, it was one-off deals. Nobody knew actually what had been negotiated and we lost money, quite honestly. And we wanted something that the partnership could get behind and feel that we had done the proper due diligence, that we took it serious and that they supported with giving us a financial fund and show that the firm is willing to take a risk, but it needs to be under the proper governance and the proper management. And that's kind of what it does. Where did the idea come from? to make this a program rather than one-offs and ad hoc, kind of every partner fend for himself to try to get the funding. I wanted it to be a program because what I saw when I first got in there is people had went and, and done things on their own. And almost every time it came back to us trying to negotiate ourselves out of a bad situation. And a lot of times the clients weren't happy with this either. So we weren't really doing a good job in this space, but what, we did see is it can be a very lucrative area and others, you know, Kirkland as an example, have done very well in contingency work. So we didn't want to 
we were starting to go down the path of saying we weren't going to do it anymore. We weren't going to do plaintiff side work. And so we wanted to bring that back. And what I saw is in doing the first one, which is how it came to us, is we actually just had one. We had one partner who said, I want to do this. And he and I had a good relationship. And he said, I want you to be part of the process. Now, this was after the fact, after you guys have had the bad experiences and negotiated yourself out of bad deals. So I spent a year working with him, working on this individual matter, working with different funders and starting to interview different ones and learning. And I had some really good mentors within some of the funders um, who taught me about it. And after we went through the whole process and I understood what they did for due diligence, how you negotiate waterfalls, what you do in, in term sheets, what are the kinds of things you need to watch out for in when you're negotiating and what you need to have in, in um, your engagement letters and things like that. I realized there's a lot here. It took us nine months to go through that process and it was, you know, nobody had it documented. Nobody knew what you needed to do. And so it just kind of lended itself to realize that you need to have a program. Right. This is a lot of work. And what you found from the partners is they didn't know it was that much work when they got into it. So when they did it one off, they'd get in and then they'd realize, oh, my God, this is so much work. And they didn't have the expertise or the time. And things fell through the cracks. For the uninitiated, what's the high level life cycle of litigation funding? Like what needs to be put in place, you know, from start to finish? How's it work? How's everybody kind of share in the, yeah. in the proceeds? When you first start looking at a case, your client may come to you and, and have talked to a funder or either you might bring that client to a funder. But usually what you want to do is understand the basics of what the litigation matter is, And then we usually do something um, that's a skimmed down version of a due diligence with just a scope document. Internally. Internally. We look at a a high level budget to get kind of an idea of of what we think the spend is going to be. And then we usually try and put together some level of an estimate on damages. And depending upon the complexity, that can take you know, several months to put together, especially if you've got to get experts to come in and, and do damage assessments. And once you do that and you kind of know what your financials are, you know, you can start working with funders and you'll negotiate a term sheet, which is an upfront. And they do their due diligence also, right? Well, that's no, first you'll do a term sheet. So one of the, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted this upfront process. So what was happening prior was a funder would come in and want you to do a term sheet right away. And you hadn't done really an extensive right. budget. You hadn't done, uh, you know, some due diligence on what you actually were going to do with the case. And I'm not sure how well they'd even done an analysis on the damages, but you're already negotiating the right. term sheet with the funder. And the term sheet sets out like who shares and what, who's who shares responsible what. for what, right. what skin the firm has in the game. Right, yeah. right. And so when you don't know that and you lock that in and then you go back and you do this due diligence, which they then do as well, and that can take several months depending upon um, the complexity of the case, you find out a lot. And if you would do a little bit more up front, you wouldn't be in this back-end position where you've done a term sheet and now you realize this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And that's sometimes what happened. Has the due diligence process on the funder side, once the term sheet is signed, has that been shortened by the work you, the firm has done Absolutely. itself? Yeah. Absolutely. So, I mean, that's what we've learned. And in talking to the funders, 
I, I would say kudos to our team. The feedback is what you guys are doing is what everybody should be doing because this helps everyone downstream. For one, it also helps the funder because there's cases that you just shouldn't even take to them at all. And right. you go and you take it to them and then you find out through their due diligence and you've wasted everybody's time. But, but you've only taken it to them because to your point, you haven't done your own due diligence. You haven't done your it own looks, due diligence. It looks good on a, a first blush, you yeah. know, facially on paper. Hey, this, this could be something. Right. Right. Yeah. And there were times where we actually went through our own due diligence and realized this isn't going to be a good case. <laughs> and it was good. We went through our own because you get the client excited and you, you know, you kind of bring them along through this process and you should really understand that first before you bring in a funder. So you got the term sheet, they do the due diligence, funders are on board. How does that impact the litigation? What's the communication cycle with the funder? I know they, they can't dictate what goes on in the litigation, right, but, right. but they still need to be in communication. How does that work? So after you go through the, you know, that due diligence with the funder and, and everybody agrees, you'll negotiate a more detailed waterfall and, and, and a budget. You'll usually agree and you'll agree on how you're going to get delivered money and what are the requirements for that. And so after that, you're right, they're not part of the decision making on the case. But what we do do, depending upon the funder and what they want, might do a quarterly update with them and you give them, you know, um, information around not just the budget and the actuals where you're at, but also what's happening with the case. We've even had situations where we'll carve out a little bit like a, a slush fund, if you want to say, and, and we'll talk about with them. We, we'd like to, to change direction a little bit here and go with a different argument here, or either we've got, we need to put some, you know, additional IPRs or something like that, you know, as you go through. And, and so you, you give them that kind of information because you need a little different you know, funding right. potentially, but so far the experience is if you're on top of it and you're managing your budgets well, and you're reporting to them, we haven't had any issues at all with the funders. They've been very, very easy to work with. And so, I mean, it, it's still early, but we're, we're probably halfway through the several cases. When was the program officially launched and rolled out? I know there was some work at a time, but when- yeah, it was about a year and a half. Now, once the firm has done the internal due diligence prior to the term sheet, are you going to multiple funders and saying, look, here's the case, and just to kind of get them, not pitted against each other, but try to get the best terms yes. you can for the client? Yeah. So that's what we've been doing. Um, and we've come up with kind of our list of preferred that we've we've worked with. Um, so that's one of the things we did. We vetted. That was part of the program. We vetted about... 10 to 15 different funders um, learned about what their specialty was. That's also right. very important. There's certain ones that are good in certain areas than others, what their threshold of investment is, what their process is, how they handle due diligence, if they're easy to work with or not. There's some that just aren't right. easy to work with. And what we usually do is take two to three that we talk to when we go through the process of doing um, you know, the pitch. We are finding that if we would go to a portfolio structure, it might be a little faster, and that's something we're thinking about. But right now, we wanted to test out working with different funders to understand how they work. Distinguish the portfolio versus just kind of one, one case at a time. How would yeah. So when you do it one case at a time, it's you and the funder, and the funder is paying us, and the funder has to take you know the risk, and there's a lot that they have to do in their due diligence process with verifying the financial stability of the client. A lot of it has to be done with their banks and, and things like that. When you do a portfolio, 
that third party with the funder, they're still there, but they're not paying on behalf of the client. It almost looks like you're the one as the firm that's fronting all the money and they're just giving you money in the back. So the relationship with the client's financial institutions does not need to be Ah. vetted. So it helps you in that with the due diligence. So particularly when you have an international case, that's really difficult because you're having to vet international banking institutions. So a portfolio will make your due diligence process be a little bit quicker, but it does mean that they get first crack at whatever you've agreed in your portfolio. Say you want to say, I'll give you guys all the IP. They get the first crack. If they decide not to do something, you can go to someone else. So that's the trade-off. Now, are the rules the road, for lack of a better word, are they memorialized somewhere like in the firm's internet? I mean, is the program, do you have this documented where, where lawyers can go to as the first step, figure out whether or not that the case they're thinking about even fits the mold? Yes. We've set it up like a proper project management with a gate gating process. So we, and we have a committee. So we have gate one is that initial due diligence. And we have a, a step-by-step of things that they need to provide. The attorney, the attorney the is pitching the case. The attorneys. And we work with them, our LPM team. We have someone dedicated to help them with doing a scoping and, and a detailed budget. And then someone on our pricing team that does all the modeling um, and verifies some things around the, the damages. That initial step goes through our litigation financing committee, which is a committee of their peers of about six partners and then myself and our CFO. And once that is approved through the committee, then it goes to the next phase, which is you can go now talk to funders and then we start connecting them with funders or either they may have the client as a funder right. and we, we work with that client's funder and they go through their due diligence. So the clients, you know, the, the funders due diligence process. And at that phase, we might tweak, you know, budgets. We might get more details on the case and on the settlement will definitely go through a very detailed waterfall exercise to understand the return. And usually you have a term sheet prior to, you know, to, to making the final due diligence steps. And then at the very end of the final due diligence with the funder, you'll have a more solid engagement letter or agreement with the client. So that's kind of that step. And in that second step, we go back to the committee and we say, okay, now we're, we've got the engagement letter ready to go. All the financials, can we execute? Can we get this funded? And that's when they approve actually releasing the money to us. Now, the phase one, the internal at the firm at the, with the committee, is that all documentary consideration or does the attorney come in and answer questions in person or Zoom or whatever nowadays? But is it is it kind of a combo of that? It's or both. It, yeah. It's both. So we, at a minimum always have a scope document, a, a budget, and a damages review. There's always an interview process with the billing partners. There's been times where they've submitted their filing motions and you know different kinds of backup from previous precedents that they may have on a, on a client, as an example. And it's usually about an hour long, and they're very engaging in their questions. Um, a lot of times what the partner's feedback after has been to me, which is also, I think, a benefit of doing this is, that was really helpful. I hadn't thought about the right. strategy. I hadn't thought about this risk. I hadn't thought about maybe doing something a little bit different. And so what was interesting about the whole process and the feedback I got from the committee is maybe we should be doing this more in general. Yes, you say every case should go through that kind of, yeah. 
<laughs> makes sense. Yeah, it makes yeah. sense. And so, you know, I bet you many clients would be willing to pay for that hour of time, even though it's five different yeah, attorneys. Because I mean, think about the amount of money it might save them down the road for efficiency, right? Do you have any kind of metrics? Uh, like, you know, how many cases have been pitched versus how many have actually yeah. been funded? We have a scorecard that we keep. For one, like I said, the firm is given a fund. So we have a certain amount of money. We track how much is in that fund. It's a rolling two-year fund. So we track where are we at with that? How much is have we committed? How much is left? And then as far as metrics, we look at how many have we pitched? How many have went through the committee? Right. How many have gotten funding or internally are funded? Who are the funders that we're using? And then for return metrics, we have things like if we're, you know, obviously on track with budget or not. So that's one of the ones that we report. Um, and we, we provide that on a quarterly basis. We look at our win-loss ratio would be one once we get to that point. Right. And then our return. So how much do we make on the investment versus how much we expected to make on the investment? What was the pushback? I'm sure not everybody, your big, big law firm. I mean, I'm sure there was pushback. People didn't like the idea. What, what was the main bone of contention? The biggest issue is that, well, there were two, I would say. The number one question that all the, that the um, partners get are, are you going to stay on budget? And that is the biggest fear within the, the committee is we run over budget and we don't get any more money from the funder and we have to eat this. Right. That was the thing that bothered them the most is if we mess up the budget, we're just eating it. You know? right. And then the second thing was they were worried about what was if we would have like non attorneys because we were doing a lot of the diligence on the case or the funders would ever be called as witnesses. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But there's been pretty significant case law that, uh, well, you, you would be covered. I mean, it's attorney work product, right? Right. I mean, you're, you're, you're in the clear. It, it comes up all the time. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's constantly being argued. Right. And the precedent has been pretty favorable to the fund. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that was, that was one of their, their concerns. But yeah. I mean, from a financial perspective, I would have thought it was, you know, the loss of the case, it was more about overrunning the budget. Yeah. Having to eat well, it makes sense, right? Because they're all owners. It goes to their bottom line. Yeah. Right? And I think that, that, again, is why sometimes it's very hard to convince law firms to buy technology because yeah. it's a dollar that would may otherwise be going in the partner's right. pockets, right? right? So that's kind of what you're up against, right? right? Yeah. yeah. So I, I set it up. I said, I, our target is this multiple. And my target is this percentage of win-loss. And I was very conservative on both. And I said, and if both of those come true, this means this is how much money we would right. make on the money that you gave us. And Which is probably better than the average case, right? It's better than the average case. So they were comfortable with that. And I think you have to come up with those kind of targets. You need to walk them through, okay, this is the assumptions we're making on the risk. If these two, which we're conservative on, you agree with, we would make this much money on it. So that's really how I got them on board. And they were like, okay, that's not so bad. What are you doing to keep the attorneys on budget that are working these funded cases? Every one of them has a mandated legal project manager has to be on it. <laughs> has to be. The budget has to be done by us. So the attorneys, they-, they The attorneys are absolutely about. hands off. All yeah. the reporting is done through us. The communication with the funder- I even have done many of the presentations to the board for the clients and, and getting them, you know, up to speed on what we're doing. So we have to be very embedded in the case for us to do it. Which again, 
I think many clients, corporate clients would say, hey, this is how every single case should be run regardless of funding, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. Other than being hard to work with, what knocked funders out? Funders who, when you agreed on a term sheet, then would change their mind after you got through the process was a real turnoff, obviously. Also, if they made it too complex, that was also a bit the term of a turnoff. Sheet. Yeah. yeah. If they, there were some where you were like, I, I, you would work on and the model and it would just get more and more complex to the point where I'm like, I don't even know what we're doing anymore. Right. So I think you can sometimes go down that rabbit hole and I'm not sure the point if you can't really understand what you're actually doing. So that was another turnoff. But quite honestly, the number one is how they treated the attorneys. Mm-hmm. I've been on calls where completely disrespectful. Why is that? Because at the end of the day, the attorneys are the one that are going to deliver the result. I mean, money is important, but it only goes so far. So, right. It's not, it's not. I had to actually jump into a call and actually correct the person because they were interrupting our partner who is in a very experienced partner. Every time they asked him a question, they wouldn't let her answer. Just Uh, kept interrupting. And I was finally like, if you're not going to let her speak, we're done. Right, right. So in retrospect, if you had to do it over again, or if I'm at a, another firm and I consult you about doing this, what do you tell me that you do differently or suggest, or what have you learned? I'm really happy with what we did. I would say, I, I don't know if I've got any lessons learned yet because I'm still right. in it about maybe what I would do differently with the program. What I would would say is, I was really happy that I got a year runway and that the firm allowed me to, and I was very, very upfront with the committee. You got to be more than a year, right? I, because- I, well, no, no, no. I mean, it, they, they gave me nine months, that first one that was nine months. To get the funding, but not to complete the case, right? No, to get the funding. That, yeah, that okay, first yeah. one. And I, and I went to the leadership and I said, I know you guys want to do this. This is new for me. I want to learn it. Will you let me? And then the partner who was working with me, he was like, I want Angie to, to, to run with this and learn this with me. So they gave me that time to learn. And I kept bringing back stuff to them to, to help them, you know, also understand what we were doing. But having that period of time to really learn it and understand it before I put a proper program together was the best thing that we did. I think a lot of times lawyers can get really excited. I know you say they may be negative, but they get excited about an idea and they want you to just do it right right away. And this time they didn't. And that was good. Litigation takes time. You're not going to see a result for two, three, maybe more. Yeah. And plus COVID added to that because a lot of the stuff you started was put on hold. Are you getting questions like, hey, where's the ROI here? Are you having to kind of like communicate more often or different info to the partners about what's going on or not yet. I mean, we actually got lucky and this is another added bonus to it. We had one of the cases we decided not to do. We chose to not do it and then took it to three funders and they actually also decided not to do it. But the threat of us using a funder prompted it to settle. Oh, wow. And so we spent hardly anything (laughs) And got a settlement. So this was already... And this was a client that was struggling with getting a settlement for like two years. So this was an existing case, existing client that probably just couldn't afford Couldn't afford anymore. Right. Yeah. Which is, you alluded to that earlier. Funding allows you to represent 
clients that you may not have been able to otherwise. But also help ones that you're existing with. True. Agreed. Agreed. Or help in liquidity, even with a corporation right. who's trying to, to not show an expense that's going to be quite big, you know, until they have the settlement. There's many ways to right. use it. Which that's the next step, right? You yeah. roll that out. You roll that out to your, your corporate clients. Go, look, we've been doing this for three years now. When, when you get to that this point. This is our success level. Look at this. You know, is there stuff you would, you want to bring, but you don't want to, you know. Right. Put on you don't want to put it on your balance sheet. Yeah. yeah. That should be appealing to the attorneys. That's right. So, but, but you're right. We need some need runway. Time. Yeah. And that's, yeah. So that happened um, probably about six months ago. And so everybody was so excited. So, like, we already got a win. We didn't do anything. You know, how, how good could this program be? But their number one thing right now is, are we on budget? And we just keep reporting yeah. that we're, you know, we're tracking the budget. And that's making them all feel good because, you know, we're not losing what they thought was going to be the, the biggest issue, which is Have you been money. able to take that and show the value of your project management team? For other just non-funded cases? Absolutely. Good, yeah. So the lawyers that are working with us on this program are some of our biggest, you know, advocates internally and use now legal project management on all of their work. That's great. So it was a great starting for us with LPM. Yeah. Angela, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Okay, that's a wrap for today's episode. As always, we really appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on most major podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, etc. Also, if you like us enough, I hope you leave us a favorable review. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.